in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be looking at Isaiah 6 this morning. And we will read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. This is the very word of the Lord. Let's pray before we uh, explore what God is saying to us this morning in it. Father, please help us now uh, as we open your word to have understanding and clarity. Lord, give me, uh, as the speaker, um, precision, Lord, to say only what you are saying. To, to speak only what is in line with what you have spoken in your word. And Lord, give all of us as the hearers of your word. Give us um, not only ears to hear, Father, but hearts to receive and, and hearts to, to then go and do in response to your word, to live lives in accord with your word. Father, help us, please, to not be hearers only, but doers as well. Draw near to us now, Lord. We need your help to understand, to be transformed greater into the image of Christ. We ask you in the name of Christ. Amen. Have you seen the holiness of God? Have you seen it? Uh, the, the question is, is a big one. M- maybe uh, too big to even fully comprehend and answer. Have you seen the holiness of God? Nearly 3,000 years ago, the prophet Isaiah saw it. And what he saw changed everything for him. It set him on a course of ministry almost unlike any other man before him, Or after him. Isaiah was a prophet 
in Israel, meaning he spoke for God. God communicated directly to him, and he spoke the words of God to God's people. And he was amongst many prophets, but one of the most uh, uh, powerfully used. His prophetic utterances are quoted in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles more than any other prophet in Scripture. Isaiah really has become a a pillar in in the Christian faith. Uh, During his ministry, not only was he a prophet, but he was a royal advisor to four kings. He he was a statesman. He was familiar with the, the halls of royalty. And it was Isaiah's prophetic words that that bolstered the kings, like when Hezekiah was faced with the Sennacherib and was terrified that, that Assyria would overtake Judah. And, and he, he heard from Isaiah to trust in the Lord, and, and Hezekiah's resolve was bolstered as, as Israel stood up against the Assyrian king approaching. Although Isaiah was a profound influence in Israel, he was not always liked by Israel. He often had messages of warning and judgment for a wandering and disobedient people. And so Hezekiah's ministry, as glorious as it was, as profound as it was, came in the midst of great persecution, often fighting against the very people he was ministering to. Often when Jesus... Uh, would rebuke the hard-hearted crowds. He would cite the words of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 53 that stands as, to quote uh, Pastor John MacArthur, the most astonishing prophet prophecy in the Old Testament. And so, here Isaiah, a, a bold, courageous, righteous minister of Yahweh, One of the greatest figures in all of scripture. A man who today, nearly 3,000 years later, we're still speaking of. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, we find the moment of Isaiah's life-altering call into God's service. We find the moment that for Isaiah, the curtain of heaven was pulled back and he had the wonderful and awesome, yet yet as we'll see, simultaneously terrifying experience of meeting the divine king of the universe in a very up-close, intimate, and personal way. And friends, what we're going to discover this morning is as we recount this moment in Isaiah's life, um, we're going to discover that we too must have an encounter with God. And specifically, an encounter with God's holiness if we are going to serve God. So as we look at Isaiah's life uh, and we look at this courageous man of God who stood boldly for Yahweh, even in the face of much persecution, and lived faithfully to the end, uh, if, if we look at his life and say, we too want to live a life of faithfulness like Isaiah, then my friends, we must see what Isaiah saw. We must discover and come face to face with the holiness of of God. This passage um, is, is, 
has a very simple outline that we'll look at this morning. Two points. Um, Point number one, the revelation. And point number two, the response. So let's look at point number one, the revelation. What, what, What is it that Isaiah saw that changed his life forever? Look there in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He had a revelation of God. Now, some of you may be thinking or objecting in your minds, um, thinking back to a text like Exodus 33, uh, 20, where God says, no one can see me and live. And you might be thinking, well, how did Isaiah see the Lord and then live to write about it? How was he able to, to pen these words? Um, and I think the, the answer is quite simple. It's essentially the same way that Moses was able to see the Lord and live through the experience. Uh, God gave him a, 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 an insight, a, a vision of himself, which wasn't full in its grandeur, full in, in his, his showing all of who he was, because no human could stand that and live. But he allowed, if you remember back in Exodus 33, uh, uh, the, the back of his, of his backside to pass before Moses. And Moses caught just a glimpse of Yahweh. And it was enough to see who God was, to, to see his character and his majesty, but also not so much that it would have ended Moses' life. And, and I believe that's what's happening here. Uh, Isaiah is being given a glimpse into the divine realm of heaven in such a way that lets him live. He sees the glory of God, the holiness of Yahweh, and yet he sees it in a way that he's allowed to live through it, to tell others of it. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he goes on to describe what he saw. And notice the first thing there in verse 1. I saw, or in the year that King Uzziah died. I think it's interesting that God is being contrasted with King Uzziah here. His enduring reign, as we'll see in a moment, uh, this God who is ruling, this God who is sovereign. Uh, the, the first thing we should note from Isaiah's uh, vision is the eternality of this God. He, he stands above the kings, even though these kings rise and fall, live and die. Uzziah, who's also referred to as Azariah, Um, was a very impressive political figure in Israel. He became king when he was 16 years old. Um, I shouldn't have had my driver's license at 16. That was a bit too much for me, so my parents said, wait till you're 17. Still shouldn't have had it at 17. Uh, But that's a lot of responsibility for a young man, uh, king at 16, and he, he reigned for 52 years. Um, you know, we, we might lose sight of this. Uh, our, we have a, a president every four years, and there's a change. But, but I think we get it. Um, isn't it, for some, uh, a very anxious time when, when elections come around? Because there's a, a change in regime. 
And so uh, every year, whether you're, you, you have someone who's conservative or liberal, who, whoever's you, you know, being placed into office, the other side is saying, well, you know, we're packing up and going to Canada, or how's Mexico looking this time of year? Uh, because there's always this anxiety about a, a change in, in leadership. Uh, because leaders bring stability. Um, even if they're not a great leader, you kind of know what you're going to get with them, and there's a certain stability. And, and it was the same thing in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, it, it was a frightening world to live in. You had, especially in Israel, uh, to, the, to the northeast, you had uh, Assyria, and to the west, you had Egypt, and, and these superpowers were growing in strength. And, and when a nation was growing in strength, much like today, um, they, they want to take over other nations. I think we kind of lose sight of that in America. We feel sometimes untouchable. Um, perhaps that's why the attack on September 11, 2001 was so jarring. War for us as Americans is always fought over there, right? Outside of our sphere. But, but on that day, war came to our shores and we felt it. While living in the ancient Near Eastern world, you would have had constant threat of war. And so to have a king who knew what he was doing and for over five decades sat on the throne, and he was a good king. The scriptures tell us that, that Uzziah did what was right. And so people enjoyed being under King Uzziah. And uh, he was a successful king, protected Israel from its enemies, providing unprecedented stability for the southern kingdom of Judah. But then he died. And you can imagine what the, the ethos in Judah would have been when King Uzziah died. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions, a lot of fear. But that's just the thing, isn't it? His career ended. In fact, all careers end, except one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What Isaiah saw was the eternal God, whose life is not taken, but who is the giver and taker of life. The eternal God who Isaiah would declare over and over throughout his prophetic ministry using an interesting phrase. Isaiah will often say, Yahweh who inhabits eternity. Isn't that interesting? That eternity is his home. It's where he resides. You and I can't even conceive of eternity. If you actually sit and try to think of, there never was a beginning, nor will there ever be an end. Our, our minds find their limit quickly. And yet for Yahweh, that is his home. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He has no beginning and no end. And so, although nations rise and fall, kings come and go, God stands above it all. And that's what Isaiah saw, this eternal God. But he further saw that he is a ruling God. Look again at verse 1. He is sitting upon a throne. In the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, a throne was a powerful image. 
Unlike the modern democratic forms of government leadership that we are used to today, the ancient world was ruled by kings. And people understood that the king was the most powerful man in the land. Uh, Many of them ruling over multiple nations. They were called sovereigns. And so the image is a simple one, and yet it's a powerful one. God is sitting upon a throne. He is ruling. And notice something about this throne. Isaiah saw it high and lifted up. This reveals not only the fact that he is a ruler, but that he is the ruler, a sovereign God. The image of its height, it's again a a picture of authority. His throne is above every throne. Although the kings in this earth, like Psalm 2 reminds us, uh, want to compete with God and his rule, his throne is in the heavens. It's the highest of all thrones. His kingdom rules over all. Isaiah will say in Isaiah 14, verse 27, listen to this, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it, or who will cancel it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? What he's saying is when, when King Yahweh decrees something, there's no one there to override it. There's no checks and balances with Yahweh. And so Isaiah saw this powerful, eternal, sovereign ruler of all creation sitting on his throne. Again, there's, there's more imagery there that that's, uh, should be noticed. Is, is he, he's not pacing around. Um, when, when I get anxious or worried or I have a lot on my mind um, or anytime I'm on a phone call, I can't sit still. I don't know if some of you are like that, but if you are ever on a phone call with me, uh, maybe 10 minutes in I'll get out of breath because you know, I'm not in the greatest shape ever and I'm inevitably walking. Um, because I can't sit still. And when I have a lot on my mind, um, when the new week's coming, Monday's coming, and there's a lot to do, I find myself moving around. Uh, Some of you can relate to that, because uh, we're body and soul, and so um, what's on our heart will be reflected in our our bodies. And um, isn't it true, when when you are watching uh, the voting results come in on election night, you're sitting there looking at the TV like this, or you're watching the stock market, or whatever it is. Um, it, it can be a sign of, of nervousness, or anxiety, or, or this sense of something's out of my control. I don't, I don't have control over this, so I'm anxiously waiting to see what will happen. Um, that's not the picture Isaiah saw of Yahweh. When, when the heavens were, were opened to him, he saw not only a king, an eternal king, not only a ruling king, an authoritative king, he saw a king who was sitting on his throne. A position of control, of certainty. And though the people of Judah were scrambling around wondering, what will happen to us now? We've just lost our, our ruler of 52 years. God sat on his throne. And Isaiah goes on in the vision. And the train of his robe 
filled the temple. This is an image of a majestic God. When I got uh, married to my beautiful wife, Ginger, she did most of the wedding uh, preparations. Um, I was pretty useless. I just had to help my groomsmen get, you know, groomed, I guess, and ready for the day. And uh, one thing she did ask me, um, she asked me if I had any preferences on her wedding dress. And man, I love wedding dresses and studying. No, I don't. I have no idea. What, what do you, uh, white. I want it to be white. Uh, but I actually did have a specific preference, and it was from this text. I, I just asked her, I, I would love a long train. Uh, because there's something, isn't there, uh, majestic when the, the music starts to play and all of you rise and your heads turn to the back and the two doors open and in walks the bride. And it's something um, that speaks to her beauty and her majesty when this, when this uh, dress is so long that her, her bridesmaids have to walk behind her carrying the, the train of her dress. And there's this collective gasp sometimes if you've been at a wedding when they see the beautiful bride walking down the aisle. There's a majesty to it. And what Isaiah saw here was that this, this robe of, of Yahweh filled the temple. I mean, just imagine it. If even now you saw me speaking and, and you noticed something about my jacket, and that's not a normal jacket. Oh, it's, oh, it's more of a robe, and it's quite long. And then you, you notice as... I'm speaking it, it goes down off the steps. And then as you kind of get your bearings, you realize that this, this robe that the speaker's wearing, it, it's going all through the room. It's everywhere. It's filling this place. There's a majesty to that. And it's, it's speaking to the, the filling of the temple. If you even think of that as filling all the earth, that the majesty of God is on display Everywhere, There's not one square inch that his majesty is not seen. His robe fills the temple. As if to say, not one square inch of the universe where this majesty is not seen by his creation. This holiness, this resplendence is seen everywhere. And it causes the angels to sing a song. Here we have what you could say is the culmination of this vision, um, the, 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 the mountain peak of what Isaiah is seeing when he hears the call of the angels. Look at verse 3. One called to another and said, these are the, seraph- the seraphim who are standing in his presence. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. Interesting here that it's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. Some of you may be aware, um, but there is no other attribute of God in all of Scripture repeated three times like this. We're told that God is love, but never love, love, love. God is just, but not just, just, just. We're only told God is holy, holy, holy. And this threefold repetition indicates how intense this song was. 
It's how Scripture often emphasizes things, by repeating them. And we have to ask, why? Why this attribute of God? Why is this one sung three times and repeated three times when no other attribute of God is? And I think the answer is found in that the holiness of God is not to be conceived or understood uh, as any one attribute of God amongst many others. Rather, it's this overarching um, term representing the entire concept of who God is. One man has said it is his holiness is the massive fact about God. In 1 Samuel, we read that there is none holy like Yahweh. It's this overarching term representative of the entire concept of who he is, making every other attribute a a, a mere expression of this holiness. And maybe you ask, well, what is even holiness? And I, I, I think words fail us at this point to to explain it, but, but we, could, we could try. Um, holiness being God's total transcendence, his, his uh, uh, altogether above us, his separateness from all creation. Uh, John Piper puts it this way. He says, in the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. There may be yet more to know of God, but that will be beyond words. And so Isaiah saw this God sitting on his throne and the angels calling out, Holy, holy, holy. And the second part of their song reveals the the glorious nature of God and his holiness. The whole earth is full of his glory. Much like the train of his robe filling the temple, what we're seeing here is that God's glory is on grand display. It's not docile, it's not dormant, it's not a reclusive attribute of God that is only, only discovered by a few. No, the, the seraphim shout about this holiness. They, they, they make songs of this glory. It is on grand display. Imagine being Isaiah. Imagine this moment. Try to put yourself in his shoes, so to speak, or his sandals, and and think about this actual moment. When heaven was open to him, and I I even get a sense, you know, as I prepare for this message and and seek to preach this message and we read these words, we we do feel that words fail, don't they? This is this all-encompassing experience. This wouldn't have just struck his mind, but his body, every facet of his being would have been affected here. And, And thinking of how he responded, we should then think of how we would respond. How would you respond? If at this moment, the gates of heaven were opened to your eyes, and you saw what Isaiah saw. Consider with me the second point, um, the response. We've seen the revelation. Consider the response. And before we get to the response of the human, um, we've got a couple more responses to see here, actually. And the first is the response of the host. 
Look in verse 2. I, I intentionally moved over verse 2 earlier because what we see there is the response of the angels. Above Yahweh stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Interesting, their, their response. Standing in the presence of Yahweh. Um, in his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, uh, Philip Yancey tells the story of him and his wife on one of their anniversary trips going to uh, see the geysers uh, at Yellowstone National Park. And there's one geyser, Old Faithful. And these geysers uh, are, are you know, a natural phenomenon, water every 45 to 60 minutes shooting up out of the earth uh, some 60 to 100 feet tall. And people will travel all over the world to, to witness these geysers shooting out of the earth. And uh, I've never seen them uh, in person, but I'm told it, it just takes your breath away. And Philip Yancey tells the, the story of after seeing some of the geysers, him and his wife go to the restaurant sort of there in the park, um, and they're eating lunch, and, and one wall of the restaurant is just a, a window. And it's, it's designed so that as you're eating and the geysers go off, you can witness them. And, and he said whenever the clock on the wall ticks down to when the next geyser is going to go off approximately, everyone gets up from their tables and rushes to the window and, and watches. And the oohs and ahs ensue as the geyser shoots up. But Philip noticed that as they did that, the, the waiters came in to bust the tables. And... He looked back, and as these, these boys and girls were, were cleaning the tables, and as maybe a hundred people are ooing and aahing at this geyser, not one of them looked up. They, they'd seen it before, and they see it ten times a day. It's grown tired for them. And yet people will fly in from all over the world. My wife and I stopped by the Grand Canyon and there we are, feeling that experience of, of how small it's like this metaphysical moment of uh, just you know, uh, having this existential crisis of who am I as you look at this massive uh, Grand Canyon. And, and there's, there's people from all over the world coming to, to see the Grand Canyon and yet walk into the gift shop. And they've seen it before. Yeah, we get it. It's big. It's deep. Yeah, take your picture. <laughs> It's, it's become unimpressive because we can grow tired of even some of the most remarkable sights in this world. Now, friends, think about the angels. We don't know when they were created, but they were created before we were created. And here the angels have stood in the presence of Yahweh for thousands of years, day and night. They're sinless. They are morally perfect. The, these, these heavenly creatures that, you, you know how we would respond if we saw an angel, don't you? Remember, twice at the end of Revelation, an angel appears to John, and both times John bows down to worship it, 
And the angel has to say, get up. I'm just a creature. Yeah, but you're not a normal creature. We're creatures. That's pretty easy to, to, to accept. But if an angel were to appear, the terror because of how pure and majestic it is, and even these angels standing in the presence of Yahweh cannot bear to look upon him. In his presence night and day, and his presence never becomes anything less than unfathomable. Look at the response of the house in verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Even the natural order trembles, and not even at the voice of God, but simply at the proclamation of the angel singing of the glory of God. And then we do see in verse 5 the response of the human. And it's maybe not what we would expect. Look at verse 5. I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, Isaiah, upon seeing Yahweh, um, gains an immediate sense of himself. Notice how he, he talks about his lips and his eyes and his ears. He, he's turned in on himself, but, but it's an interesting turning in because he immediately not only becomes aware maybe of his humanity and his, his creatureliness, calling out his ears and his eyes and mouth, his lips, uh, but he immediately becomes aware of his sin. And not only his sin, but the sin of everyone around him. Why? Because with his eyes he has seen a vision of God's glory. With his ears he has heard the song of praise. My wife and I have been trying to catch up on all of the Spider-Man movies. Because there's a new Spider-Man out. And so uh, we've had to watch several a week for the last couple weeks. Um, I think we're all caught up now. And I think it was like the sixth or seventh movie we watched, and my wife finally turns to me and goes, okay, I'm hooked. It's like, finally. Uh, she was starting to enjoy it. She's not you know, so much a, a super superhero uh, movie type. Um, but we all know the experience of seeing a, a cinematic marvel or, or feeling the, you know, your seat shake in the movie theater and walking out and saying, wow, that was amazing. And you're drawn toward it and you say, I want to see that again. Isn't that cool? And with all the effects and everything. Um, perhaps we would think that Isaiah, as he saw this vision, would be going, wow, look at this. I got to tell, tell everybody about That was really, that was, a, that was a great show. That was remarkable. Thank you, God, for letting me see that. It's not his response. His response is to immediately turn inward and to see how vile of a sinner he is. As he stood peering into the vision of God's grandeur, one man writes, it confronted him with his own depravity. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost. That word for lost uh, could really be translated doomed. Woe is me, I am undone. Or it has the idea of, of unraveling. 
His entire person has just come apart. He feels as if every molecule is about to splinter because of what I've just witnessed. Friends, what he was experiencing was the conviction of sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. Have you seen your sin against the backdrop of God's holiness? Not against the backdrop of your friends or this culture or of the worst people you know. Have you seen your sin when placed against the backdrop of God's holiness? Um, Until you do, you still stand the chance of being a good person. You can still be a good person as long as you compare yourself with everyone else. But the moment you see yourself against the, the holiness of God, the response must be the response of Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm unraveled. I'm doomed. If that's the standard, I've got no hope. Isaiah would prophesy later in chapter 64 that we have all become like one who is unclean and even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He saw that even the best deeds he had were filthy against the holiness of God. Now, friends, that's um, not a hopeful place to end uh, this response because it it leaves us exactly there, uh, hopeless. Isaiah is immediately confronted with how sinful he is. But praise God, there's a fourth response to this vision, and it's the response of heaven itself. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The first response from heaven is that of compassion. The sin, the conviction that was crushing Isaiah was forgiven. The angel, as a messenger from heaven, takes a coal from the altar, the the place of sacrifice, where the sacrificial lamb would have been slaughtered. And he brings it to Isaiah, the sinner, to purge him of his guilt. The, The work of the altar applied to Isaiah, guilt taken away. But heaven's response is not complete because then we see in verse 8, a commission. So the first response is of compassion, but then there's a commission. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Haven't you noticed, oddly uh, strange, how quiet God himself has been? Everyone and everything is speaking. The house is speaking. The angels are speaking. Now Isaiah has spoken. And yet God has said nothing. Until now. Whom shall I send? He's commissioning a messenger. But but you've got to ask, in in light of this vision, in light of who he is, after all that has been seen, who would dare volunteer themselves to be a commissioner or to be a messenger for this God? Who, who, after seeing him in his holiness, would go, okay, yeah, I'm worthy. Give me the job. But Isaiah does. He he volunteers. 
Here I am, send me. Why? Not on the basis of his righteousness or qualification, but only on the basis of what has just happened to him. His guilt being taken away from the ta- by the coal from the tongs at the altar. And so now, as a, a justified sinner, he answers the call of Yahweh to speak for Yahweh. And what came next? Well, it's what we saw at the start. A life of boldly prophesying the words of God. A life of defying rebellious Israel. You know, we don't uh, know from Scripture exactly how Isaiah died, but we read in Hebrews 11 that some were sawn in two who served the Lord. And we know from historical writings that that was likely Isaiah. Sawed in two by his people for prophesying the words of God. And yet, even in the face of an agonizing death, he refused to turn from God. He was faithful to the end. What a remarkable life compelling and passionate. And yet without this vision, Isaiah would not be the man we know him to be. It altered everything for him. And so, my friends, in conclusion, I guess I just wonder, don't we often feel if only we had the conviction and the faithfulness of an Isaiah? If only we had the boldness to stand for our faith in the the face of persecution If only we had the faithfulness to turn from temptation and to serve our Lord. But don't you think if you had such a vision, you'd be more like Isaiah? Maybe we look at Isaiah and go, well, yeah, of course he lived that life because look at what he got to see. I've never seen heaven opened. I've never had a vision like this into heaven. If only I could see such glory. Maybe I would be less worried about the political shifts in society. Maybe I would be a, a little bit less worried about the difficult circumstances in my life. Maybe I'd be less intimidated by the people at work who, who don't like my faith. If only I saw what Isaiah saw. Friends, I, I want to show you something just in the next couple of minutes. Um, turn out of Isaiah and go to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12, we find Jesus confronting rebellious religious leaders. And he's just a few days away from his crucifixion, but um, Jesus has had enough at this point of their unbelief. We read in verse 36 of John 12 that Jesus departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then John, the author, writes these words. This is John 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53. But look in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. John is quoting Isaiah. Why? 
Because Isaiah prophesied that although the people would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, they would not believe him. He quotes Isaiah. And then look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did he see? The glory of Jesus Christ. And when did he see it? In Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw Jesus sitting upon the throne. His vision was a vision of the Son of Man, the incarnate Christ. Which means, my friends, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to behold the person and work of Jesus... You've already had an Isaiah-like vision. In fact, you've seen more than Isaiah saw. He caught a glimpse into heaven for a moment. We have seen Christ enter the world and live amongst us for 33 years. He has given us the full and final revelation of God the Father. Not just a momentary glimpse into heaven. We have the person and work of Jesus standing before us in all of its completion and clarity. Isaiah peered into heaven. In Christ, heaven came down to earth. And my friend, that should leave us under conviction When we see the holiness of Christ, we can only respond how Isaiah responded, Woe is me. And yet, in the face of that conviction, it was not an angel that God sent with tongs from the altar to cleanse us of our guilt. No, friends, in Christ, God himself comes down and sits upon the altar, is sacrificed for us on our behalf to cleanse us. He doesn't send an angel to cleanse our guilt. He comes himself, Yahweh seated on a throne, leaving that throne to enter this world to purify us of our sin if we would only look to him. That life-changing moment in Isaiah 6 when the curtains of heaven were pulled back for him to peer through, he saw sitting on the throne Jesus Christ. So friend, if you want to live a life Like Isaiah lived, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look to him in all of his glory and majesty. Let's pray. Father, help us please to to capture this vision of Christ. Lord, help us to see his beauty and his glory, that he is the savior of the world, the king of the universe, to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess. Oh Lord, may we look upon Christ now May we turn to him, and though it will lead us to conviction, may we find in him the sweet grace of forgiveness as a beautiful and kind and gracious Savior. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.